Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Everybody, I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for the amazing intro. Please check him out. He's a, a very famous native storyteller and his profession and how he has practiced it and shared his magic and his storytelling with the world is quite phenomenal. Find him on the internet, Native Storytellers or Ken Quiethawk. Uh, it's amazing material. Please, please check it out. It's a way of of preserving history far better than the written word, I feel. I have with me tonight Joseph Selby, and he's written a book called The Physics of God. The Psych- yeah, The Physics of God. And it's, it's an amazing book, and it explains, it has explanations of transcendent phenomena given by saints, sages, and near-death experiencers, Miracles, Immortality, Heaven, God, and Transcendent Awareness. They're, they are fully cogent with scientific discoveries in the fields of relativity, quantum physics, medicine, M-theory, neuroscience, and quantum biology. That's, that's a mouthful, and yet he has pulled it together. This book describes the intersections of science and religion with colorful, easy-to-understand metaphors, making obtuse subjects within both science and religion easily accessible to the layman. No math, no dogma. This is an intriguing book and it's insightful and it expands awareness to a point where it kind of brings a lot of stuff closer together than ever ha- than I've ever seen it done before. It pulls back the curtain on the light show illusion we call matter, connects string theories hidden brain worlds to religions transcendent heavens reveals the scientific secret of life and immortality quantum biology's startling discovery that the human body is continuously entangled 
demonstrates the miracle demonstrates the miracle making power of our minds to affect instantaneous psychological changes and physical and physiological changes as well. He is a dedicated meditator for over 40 years and has taught yoga and meditation throughout the United States and Europe. He's also the author of the Yugas, Keys to Understanding Our Hidden Past, Emerging Energy Age, and Enlightenment Future Keys to Understanding Our Hidden Past. It's an amazing book as well, and, and he will be back on the show to um, talk about that book, um, as well as his other book, Break Through the Limits of the Brain, which is, again, another one of these books that is scary at first when you look at the title, but once you get into the material, it's explained so so intricately and easily that you begin to have an understanding of, of a lot of these huge words that they throw at us. But um, I have to admit, the first half of his book was the was the meat, and the second half of the book was the dessert. So it, it it's a book that provides everything with your appetite for understanding and further uh, explaining the reality that we live in in the science and the religious aspects pulls them together and actually weaves them together so that they work with each other, which I found fascinating. So let's see how he did it. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too. Let's start with something easy. Um, what is God? <laughs> okay. Well, you can define God in a lot of different ways, but I think that the most important thing to convey is that you experience God. It's not that you figure out in your mind what God is, and therefore you have God. The key is that God is a profound experience. The great master of yoga, Paramahansa Yogananda, described God as ever-new joy, that it is this uh, hugely, deeply transforming experience of blissful, joyful feeling. And that is what God is. You can talk about God metaphysically and say that God is infinite intelligence, God is creator, God is formless. And that is true, but it's not as true uh, as the experience, the direct experience of touching into God. Uh, can be yeah i i to me god is a divine consciousness so that so that when we link into that energy we do get we do get the joy we do get the 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 majesty of a transcendental experience um i i think my issue so often it with people is that they keep talking about God as an old man with a white beard. And, you know, everybody, I, I believe everyone has the right to perceive God as they want. It's just, you know, in many cases it's let's get our, let's get our descriptions 
in sync so we know what each other is talking about. And I think that that what you've done with your book is is really profound because you you're, you got you got scientists to admit that there was such a thing as consciousness, which I thought was profound. <laughs> well, many scientists um, not only you know admit but um, understand that consciousness is fundamental to reality, and that some uh, when you get into quantum physics and some of what is generally known as quantum weirdness, and you begin to understand what it is that makes it weird, it allows quantum physicists to say that consciousness is not the product of the body and the mind, but the body and the mind is the product of consciousness, that they turn this notion completely on its head that we are physical beings creating these conscious experiences, but rather we're consciousness creating these human physical experiences. Yeah, exactly. And and that old saying, and I, now I can't remember who said it, but it's we are spirits on a physical journey, not 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 humans on a spiritual journey. And I think that that we often forget that our physical body is not the essence of our being that we have within us that that link to the divine to god that that link to cosmic consciousnesses if if you want to call it that but that you know that that is not that is only for this lifetime or or any lifetime wherein we are in a physical body but our essence is not physical our essence is etheric and in that case, in that way we are immortal um yeah just it, i i it, agree it, with you completely it's it's just i think getting people to understand the the connection between the etheric us and the physical us your book really helps to to make it clear that, that there are are two aspects of us that uh, and you know if you want to go into the many different layers of our energetic fields there are all those bodies too but but let's just talk about the astral or or the etheric body and the physical body for now because while they live in reality in our reality simultaneously we don't recognize that often yes that's i think that in some ways the irony of us having a subtle astral body that again is a body that it that is not ultimately us either because we are spirit the irony of that is that we're aware of these realities all the time without understanding that our consciousness is divine, that our consciousness exists far beyond the physical body, if you will, and that our subtle body in turn exists in another way than the physical body. And yet without spirit, without the astral body, the physical body couldn't exist. But uh-huh. our senses fool us. Our senses fool us. They uh, are very convincing that 
the world in which we move and act uh, in a physical manner is a very convincing show. It's a very convincing movie, and we get caught up in it to the point where we're not even looking for any other possible uh, reality that is that is more subtle. But the the science that in particular underlies the the M theory of quantum physics it very much supports the notion that we have this other subtle reality particularly supports the notion that we have a astral body or an energy body M theory posits that, like many other uh, string theories, and M theory is one of uh, several uh, sort of versions of string theory, all of the string theories posit that there is a vast well, there's a vast realm of pure energy that exists in a much higher frequency level than any energy that exists within our physical world. So even the highest frequency, the gamma frequencies at the, at the high end of the electromagnetic spectrum are still slow frequencies in comparison to the higher frequencies that string theory posits make up this vast realm of energy and it is indeed vast the string theory many of the string theories m theory in particular posits that uh entire other universes can exist in this energy verse in this energy realm uh that are as vast as the one we inhabit and in fact there is room if you will uh, although that is a bit of a misnomer, but we'll, we'll use that term. There's room in that vast realm for unlimited other physical universes. So, would it, you equate would you equate the different frequencies to dimensions? In other words, there are different dimensions. Uh, is the frequency would that be an equation that, you know, could you say that they were the same or is there a difference between different dimensions and different frequencies? Um, well, within uh, M-theory, there is this concept known as a brain, a B-R-A-N-E, which is a, a contraction of the word membrane. And the M-theorists use this term to describe layers within this vast realm of energy that exist at higher and higher levels of frequency, even beyond the amazingly high level of frequency of even the first brain, the one sort of nearest uh, the earth, if you will, nearest the, the, uh, the universe. And so you could say that each one of those is another dimension, but we use dimension in two different ways, and so it can be confusing because we can say that the physical universe is three-dimensional, 
that we mm-hmm. have the three dimensions of that make up space. But the M theorists say that all of the realm of this vast energy universe, vast energy verse, is two dimensional because there is no space and there is no distance. That it is uh, confounding to our usual perception. It is a realm that has none of the, the spatial or distance or time characteristics of this physical universe. And that this two-dimensionality can be considered to be a kind of dimension, or you can say that each brain is another dimension. So it gets a little confusing, and I've tried to uh, be as clear as possible about that in the book. <laughs> so I would say, I would say that, yes, this vast realm is multidimensional, but each, every one of those dimensions is, has two dimensions. So if you think about the way energy works, uh, it's a wave that vibrates up and down or left and right, but it, it vibrates within two dimensions only, where space exists within three dimensions. So everything in this vast realm has that quality. Now, if we compare what M-theory is saying about the brain-like, layer-like structure of this infinite ocean of energy to what religions refer to as the heavens, you'll find there is an amazing amount of conformity between the two that in pretty much every religious tradition, certainly every experiential uh, spiritual tradition, there is the concept that there are higher realms that we go to after death uh, near-death experience, there's a test to this. But they also say that there are are levels in these heavens. So do the, um, the religions of the world. There is the notion in Christian teachings of the, the highest heaven, the seven, seventh heaven, and there's the first heaven and so forth, referred to directly in the Bible. You find uh, a story about Muhammad being taken up into the heavens in a dream, and he goes through all of seven different layers of the heavens. Each one is more refined. Each one is more spiritual and pure than the last until the seventh heaven is the, the ultimate in, in uh, purity and in consciousness. You see this in Hinduism. You see it in Buddhism. So there's a remarkable congruence there between M-theory's brains and heaven's uh, different layers of heaven. So what I believe what we're seeing and is corroborated by near-death experiencers is that part of the structure of the heavens, the reality of the heavens, is that they're, they're pure energy, which you can also think of as being pure light, and that the beings who inhabit those realms are light beings or angels or us when we're between lifetimes and that depending on our consciousness we'll be drawn to different layers in that uh, 
stack that that uh, uh, multi-layered heaven. We're drawn to different parts. I've always been fascinated by some of the uh, stories told by near-death experiencers where they are being guided through uh, their experience. And they often say, well, I want to know, you know, I want to know more. I want to go take me up to the highest heavens. And the guide will take them, but they'll be very clear when they're there that it doesn't feel comfortable to them, that it's too high for them. It's not the vibration level at which they are comfortable. And the same can be said for them being taken to lower levels uh, and not feeling comfortable. So we all, when we die, we vibrationally find our way to the zone, uh, to the brain in heaven that fits our vibration. So uh, many near-death experiencers use the term, you know, frequency and vibration to describe what separates these different layers. So that's part of the picture that science gives us about our subtle body, so that when we are in the heavens and we're aware of them, generally, uh, for those of us not transcendent masters yet, uh, we're still in something that looks to us like a form. It looks to us like uh, our physical body looked, only uh, perhaps we're younger, healthier, uh, we don't have any of the, the ills of the body, uh, but the body is appears very similar to the way our physical body uh, looks when when we come back from these experiences. I think a lot is, of people, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, they have the concept that they go in their physical body and they it, it's their etheric body. It's their their um, I don't know what to call it. Actually, they're shade. They're they're they're. Uh, they're sh- it's it's almost like their shadow. It's 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 not physical. It's it's gosh. It's like it's cloud like. It's another for- It's another form, but it's still them. And mm-hmm. you know, so so many people think that 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 particular realm is exactly like this realm and it's not. And it's 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 hard to explain to people because of course they haven't experienced it. So, you know, once they experience it they'll say, Oh, that's what she meant. Um because it it just to me, this this going to another frequency, going to another realm makes a great deal of sense. You let go of the physicality. You no longer have the heaviness of the of the body. The body is is ac- actually um, it's been described as a prison for the soul, for the spirit. And once you let go of that, the the heaviness of this of the physicality, and you go in transcend into that frequency, then there's a whole new light about you. You no longer have the physical anything. You have just the light that is within you that, that, you know, obviously will appear to be you, but um, I don't know if they have mirrors. So I, I don't, I've never spoken to anybody that said I, look, I looked for a mirror to see just how good I looked. Um, and um, on, on occasion, I will tap into somebody who has just crossed over for their family to, you know, 
to 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 um to to give them you know comfort that the person has transcended and they've they've transitioned and and my favorite one is um this old lady who whose family was very worried about her and you know i i i could check in and see she was there and um her first reaction was oh thank god i've got a good body now and so you know she was she was feeling that there was there was no longer arthritis there was no longer the blindness there was no longer the white hair there was no longer it was it was her in a vibrant you know almost like a rainbow um of light that was around her it was it was really quite beautiful so yeah um, many hair death experiences share that that it's just they say there there are more colors <laughs> there's more light there it's more vibrant it's more alive and it's not uh separate from you you are a part of it uh uh Shri Keshwar who's the teacher of Paramahansa Yogananda who I mentioned earlier described those beings as being coordinated images of light that the intelligent oh, cool. coordination is there but it is taking the form of uh something similar to what they were in their uh you know in their life before they came to visit. Now, if they're near a death experience, mm-hmm. or of course, they go back to that same body. Um, the other thing, I don't want to get away from M-theory too quickly because it's a really rich source okay. of congruence with spiritual teachings. The other big piece of M-theory is the notion that our universe, our physical universe, is a three-dimensional holographic projection and that it is projected from a hologram. So you can think of it in terms of how holograms work uh, on our within the earth is that you have a you have a film and that film is two-dimensional and yet it can be lit in such a way using laser light that it produces a three-dimensional image. So what M-theory is saying is that this same, uh, these same laws of holography work from this higher frequency energy realm, and that forms the hologram, that forms the film, the template, that is then projected as the three-dimensional universe and that this suggests strongly that our universe is being continuously created, which is what a lot of spiritual teachings indicate, that it isn't the case that uh, the universe was, was created and then left to its own devices, but that it is an unfolding uh, sort of movie, a colossal movie, that unfolds from a beginning and has an end, yet it all originates from this energy realm. And it's particularly pertinent to each one of us to realize that our physical body is a holographic projection and that it's a holographic projection 
from the template that is our subtle energy body. Our subtle energy body is the hologram for our three-dimensional physical body. And because we live in both, we can affect the hologram. We can affect the subtle energy body, the astral body. And when we do, it immediately changes the hologram, which immediately changes the physical body. And this is the mechanism, really, of miraculous healing. Most of us don't see extraordinary changes in our physical body in our lifetime, but you read about uh, miraculous healings that, that take place, and they're because in some way, in uh, some influence, some personal experience, could be near death, could be many other things, so profoundly changes that person's heart and mind that their subtle body is immediately changed and their physical body is immediately changed after that. So an example of this that um, I have found fascinating is the the story of Anita Morjani. Anita Morjani um, was dying of uh, cancer. She had uh, open lesions on her skin. She had tumors visible. Uh, they were described as the size of lemons all over her body. Uh, the doctor said she didn't have very much time to live. She was taken to the hospital, everyone thoroughly expecting that she would die, which she did. And then she had a near-death experience. And in that near-death experience, she saw in the in the way that is rarely experienced while you're in your physical body, but she saw clearly when she was outside of her physical body and in this this realm of great freedom and light that her feelings of inadequacy and fear had actually killed her body that she could see how this mechanism worked by having this uh, feeling of fear constantly. It was deranging the way her physical body worked because these these vibrations were just reverberating around in her physical body, causing it to slowly degrade and finally die of cancer. And she saw also that she could also see clearly that she was love, that there was nothing but love, and that she was that love, and that in that experience, all things could be healed. And when she came back from her near-death experience, she was cancer-free within a matter of weeks and dramatically better within just a few days. So in her dying experience she transformed her subtle body and then her subtle body transformed her physical body. And it's, it's a remarkable mechanism. It's not limited to healing. There are all sorts of uh, dynamics we have with our, with our subtle body because we're always in it. Even if we're, you know, we, we die, people have died to become aware of it. 
<laughs> but what they're aware <laughs> of is that it's always it's always been there. Um, it's like okay, I don't I know, discovering that you have a you have a family you never knew about. I have a question here when it comes to miracles and and healing and people who are healers. In the case of of someone, um, well, let's take no, that's not let's take a, a, a healer, a faith healer. In the case of a faith healer, when people go to them in their certain, you know, usually it's it's in a big auditorium and they've got the energy flowing unbelievably, and the energy healer is is able to channel energy into that person and that person collapses and there is a healing that takes place now is that healing the did the the healer cause the healing or did the person believing they were going to be healed heal themselves how does that work it's an interesting question i think it's got to be a combination of both because if I wasn't open to that at all. I don't think it would affect me because it's got to, I've got to let it in to, mm-hmm. you know, open my heart to that kind of change. And if I don't, if my mind is telling me this is impossible, this person's a quack, all these people are crazy, then I'm just blocking any kind of change that I might be able to experience. So I have to be involved. But then I think, as you say, that vibration that a healer creates, whether it's in a in a crowd that, like you're describing, or just one on one, that vibration has to be powerful enough for me to feel it. It's got to get past my usual feelings. I have to be moved by it. I have to be uplifted by it, and. I'm not exactly sure why in the instances like you were talking about, people collapse, but maybe it's just so overwhelming, so so much new energy going through you that you can't really process it and you and you do collapse or pass out. But I think that is the combination. You have to be open to it and then the healer has to be a genuine healer to, to create that that space to create that uh, feeling so that you can I guess it, drink it in. Yeah, I, guess, I guess it's almost like they're jump-starting awareness within you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, with cars that need to have a jump-start, but once they've been jumped, then they're able to function. But let's take the case of faith healers that have, you know, um, brought people back from death. Um, Jesus, you know, told Lazarus to come forth. Um, In that kind of case, again, is it energy from one triggering an energy in another to turn around and do something different? That's a really, you ask very interesting questions. (laughs) So, uh, Lazarus, his body is dead, but Lazarus isn't dead, right? Lazarus right. is, he's in his subtle body. And he knows that he's healthy and full of life. 
But I think there's a period, a lot of uh, religious, uh, esoteric religious and spiritual uh, teachings suggest that when people die, they don't immediately go to the heavens. They kind of hang around their physical yeah. body. They stay near the people they love, and they stay in the world that is uh, familiar to them to some extent. And so I'm... Don't don't think I know this. I'm kind of putting pieces together. But I think that somebody with the power of Christ, who is fully realized, fully aware right. of all aspects of creation, could just draw Lazarus back into that dead physical body. And, you know, it, it's Lazarus's life force that's reigniting the body and getting the heart beating again and the lungs breathing. It's, it's right. his spirit, but Jesus is drawing him in. That would be the way I would think of it. I, obviously, um, I've never been asked that question, and I really don't know <laughs> how well I've how well I've answered it. But I think. It, it all really is centered, as I think you were hinting, in the in the astral, in the subtle. Those those kind of yeah. healing experience happen because we are deathless beings still living in the light. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's what that's what you know. I am so glad for your book because it does make such great sense that that we are we are. I mean, the the fact that I am literally an avatar for my for my spirit to ride in and that you know I can trade it in like like when I need a new winter coat you know if I you know I'm done with this body let me go on to the next one um it, it's 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 very much like that and there's there's fear that has been in inbred uh, uh, into us by um by organized religions that you know this is it this is the end and you know and it's not it's just a stepping stone and i think that that your book helps to make it so obvious that 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 we are the projection we are not the reality and so the the etheric on the other side um is working through us to gather information i think there there's some place it's written um, I didn't write it, but it's written someplace that the Earth plane is the only place where there is a physical experience. That that basically in other realms we are basically more in the etheric field than the than than the physical presence that we have created here. Yeah, I would I would say. Well, I'm not sure that the Earth is the only place but i think it is given i'm sorry about that i didn't realize that i had dropped off so i talked for quite a while you guys missed just a wonderful answer to your question that i'll never be able to repeat in exactly the same way well let's try <laughs> okay uh, because because it was a good it was a good question and and you know the 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 um Will you pick up from where you think you left off? Well, you better tell me actually where you thought. You can't remember. Uh, ask me the question again. 
can't remember what question it was. Um, I was talking about about um, the fact that 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 this that the the physical reality is really is really an illusion, and that that our etheric body is attached to cosmic oneness. And so, if that's if that then is the case. Um, what is the purpose of the projection and the 3D world? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, it sort of goes back to, you know, if we are, if we are God-like, why did God create this entire experience for us where we experience ourselves as not God-like? Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a conundrum for millennia, and it has. It has been answered in many ways. The, I think the one that makes the most sense to me intellectually, but is maybe not super satisfying uh, emotionally, is, as we've been discussing, that we're learning that this um, process of creation and us reincarnating again and again is so that we can learn and expand back into the infinite spirit from which we came. Um, but it seems sometimes like, a, you know, for me personally, it seems sometimes like a, a, a bit cruel that if I really am this pure love and bliss, I would really prefer to have that be my experience thank you very much uh rather than you know this this not having it so uh, i think it often makes people think you know that that god is um being unkind but on the other hand there is an answer that i also like which satisfies the heart which is that when you do realize god again it's as if the whole dream just vanishes in a in an instant and that you wake up and you're awake you're never to go back to sleep and that it all seems like nothing okay but if <laughs> but if our experience here is to learn and to grow i'm fine with that i got that but to what purpose since our source already has all of the knowledge and wisdom? So well, we're not I think what we're learning is that no, we're not learning like collecting facts or information. We're learning to be more aware of spirit, be to be more aware of who and what we really are. That's the real lesson not you know gathering abilities necessarily or understanding intellectually or metaphysically what this structure of reality is i think the real learning is um to to know in to realize to feel without any doubt our connection to spirit and that we grow doesn't our but doesn't our spirit already know that because it's so connected to the, to the divine, to the source? It is a bit paradoxical, isn't it? I mean, 
If if we well, know in, in spirit what we are already, why don't we know it in our current circumstances? I think my, it's my because person. we're choosing we're choosing not to for for a wide variety of reasons. We're choosing to be more interested in the movie we're in than in the producer and director of the movie that we're uh, we're caught up in the movie and we start to want the movie to go in a certain direction and that gets our emotions involved. If the movie doesn't go in the direction we want it to go, we feel bad. And if it goes in the direction we like, then we feel excited. And all of that just keeps us involved in the movie and just ignoring the deeper truth of our or, innate connection to spirit. Or what if, Joseph, we are the fallen angels and this is our journey towards oneness again and having to learn it in different levels and different dimensions and in different ways to rejoin the oneness that created us in the first place that we rebelled against. Um, I think that's another way to tell the story that that I am comfortable with. Uh, I would say that we're all fallen angels in that sense, but not because necessarily we uh, did something evil, but because we fell from awareness, uh, we mm-hmm. plunged into matter, and now we are, you know, making our way back. I think that's a good a good story. I think there are a lot of stories. And I don't mean to say that uh, that it belittles truth, but it's just that there are so many ways to explain such a such a big and important facet of what we're dealing with, and that they all they all tell a different important part of the whole. I think the the one thing that that um, most people struggle with. Uh, is that 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 while we are while we are an immortal spirit, um, we're not being watched over and judged by the source. That this is a journey, and what happens is supposed to happen. And you know, we are we are having the experience we need to have. And even though sometimes it feels cruel and unjust and unfair. On some level, there's a purpose to it that defines and redefines and polishes the spiritual energy that we are in the second dimension because of experiences in the third dimension. Yes, uh, I I completely agree with that. I think that's a, a good way to to express it. I think I think you know we've I've been talking and you've been talking about you know the two dimension and the three dimension levels. Um, I'm not sure people are going to understand that who haven't read the book um, because it doesn't make sense to me that a, a second dimension would be more powerful than a third or fourth or fifth dimension. Ah, uh, yes, you often hear in. Um in discussions about esoteric teachings that 
people have found a way into the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension. Uh, they have access to these, to these, which they're they're describing as higher. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, maybe how they how they got there. They might say, oh well, the fourth dimension, the fifth dimension are pure energy, um, which would be the same way I would describe the two-dimensional realities that make up the heavens. And this could just be semantics about whether you've got more mm-hmm. dimensions or <laughs> or less dimensions. <laughs> Uh, but well, yeah, I think we, that the, I think that the, the, as always, the, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It's the, the experience you have. And if, if these, uh, folks who are having deep experiences, and they call it the fifth dimension, but they're full of bliss and light and they're transformed, then what does it matter whether, well, yeah. uh, we call it that? Okay, and just just out of curiosity, so what's the first dimension then? Well, according to Yogananda, and uh, this is where I draw a lot of my kind of core uh, descriptions of the cosmos, according to Yogananda, the physical universe is the three-dimensional the energetic realm is two-dimensional. And then there's a realm beyond that that is pure thought. It's absolutely without form. And it is one-dimensional. And then beyond that is the unmanifested infinite, which is no-dimensional, zero-dimensional. And it is the the infinite, formless essence from which thoughts spring and then energy springs and then matter springs in this chain of creation that ends up with our universe. You know, we, we've, you, you talk about the physics of God, and, and, and I think you have brilliantly shown how science and and the paranormal and metaphysical world really do come in you know they 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 touch for sure and overlap here and there why is there such a struggle between science and faith it's a good question and it's really the answer to that is is really why i felt inspired to write the book um in order to reconcile science and religion, you have to do two things. One is that you have to uh, see that the discoveries of science and then the interpretations of what those discoveries mean are two separate things. So you have this vast body of experiments that have been conducted by scientists for two or three hundred years now. And those experiments following the scientific method have the one commonality that 
you know, to either prove or disprove a particular hypothesis. So we have a, a lot of proven hypotheses, but then they're rolled together by scientists into theories, into um, interconnecting, integrated uh, ways of seeing what reality is. And there's a large contingent, very uh, influential contingent within the scientific community that believes sincerely and deeply that the discoveries of science, the proper interpretation of the discoveries of science, is that nothing exists except matter and energy. And it's really a, a belief system. It's a, it's a, a, a stance that they take that eliminates the possibilities of their, in their minds, of there being any truth to spiritual teachings or to anything paranormal. Uh, uh, because matter and energy interactions simply cannot explain subtle spiritual teachings. And so, rather than perhaps taking the obvious route and saying, well, maybe there's something wrong with our interpretation, they just say, no, there's, <laughs> there's something wrong with religion and spiritual experience altogether. It's just all nonsense. But the good news is that even though this is a very influential core of scientists who uh, by and large control the the journals that publish papers by other scientists uh, and, and thus ensure that there's always a, uh, a, an interpretation that fits scientific materialism, even though that core group exists, they're a minority. According to a Pew uh, research study that was done in 2008, I believe, 41% uh, of scientists considered themselves to be scientific materialists. Uh, where 51% of scientists believed in God or a higher power. So even among scientists, they're not a, uh, you know, a unified monolithic opinion about science. So if you can understand that you've got this interpretation of the discoveries on the one hand, and then you've got the discoveries themselves, it opens you up to read the works of other scientists who see consciousness possible, who see subtle realities beyond the physical realm possible in the same discoveries, in the same world. So that's the first thing you have to do is realize that, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, science tells us X. And you have to realize that that is a scientist telling you X. It's not science. <laughs> science is just yeah. a means of discovery. Science is just a way, a very uh, methodical way of making discoveries. And it doesn't tell you anything. Uh, it just tells you whether a hypothesis is correct or incorrect. And there are literally millions of hypotheses that have been uh, the basis of experiments in science for all these uh, all these hundreds of years. 
So that's the first thing, is, really, is to understand that there is a strong group of people who interpret the discoveries of science to mean that matter and energy is all there is. But there's a larger group of scientists who can accept that there is the possibility of God and a higher consciousness that exists. Then on the other hand, you have religion. And uh, I used religion very definitely as the comparative point between science and religion uh, because it's in religion rather than in spirituality that we find the you know equally problematic human tendency for all the members of one religion to want to feel like theirs is the best and only religion and that there becomes a uh, rather than religions looking for the core experiential spirituality that unites them they look for all the key things that differentiate them from all the other religions and then they develop uh, rituals and tenets and dogmas which makes the scientists look at it and say this is just a mess <laughs> there's no <laughs> you know there's no rhyme or reason to all this and so they it's easy for them to think it's all just superstitious nonsense but if you again if you do the same thing that I suggested you do with science and uh, take a look at who is interpreting what religion is rather than just taking what the interpreters are ta saying as the truth. And uh, you will find that just like there's this hardcore of scientific materialists, there's a whole realm of theologians that exist in religions who have not themselves had high spiritual experience, and yet they turn the uh, testimony of the saints and sages who have had high spiritual experience, they turn it into theology. They turn it into religious theories rather than scientific theories. And they have not had the actual deep experience. There's, it's often told, you've probably heard this, but um, if you could imagine, you know, Jesus and Buddha and Krishna uh, and, and other saints all meeting in the, in the same place, they would all just laugh. They would all just enjoy each other's joy and not see any differentiation between them. That oh, yeah. is the interpretation of theologians. So you get rid of the scientific materialist uh, interpretation of the science discoveries and you get rid of the theological debris that has attached itself to religions for centuries and you just look at what the saints and sages say directly about their experience and suddenly there is no division. You have... Well, you know, it's it's been said that... Um Einstein, one of the books that he read a great deal was, was um, Madame Blavatsky, and he had mm -hmm. notes all over the place in her book. So, so even though he was a scientist, 
he definitely was getting into the esoteric side as well. Yeah, and Heisenberg, who was one of the uh, pioneers of quantum physics uh, in the latter part of his life, uh, got deeply into Vedanta. And uh, mm-hmm. he is the source of one of my one of my favorite quotes, which is, he said that the first gulp from the glass of science will make you an atheist, but God is waiting at the bottom. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> just, if you just go deep enough into yeah. particularly quantum physics and uh, M-theory, as I mentioned, uh, you begin to see these amazing parallels, and you also begin to appreciate that a lot of these early pioneers of physics, and then there's a whole stream of them still with us, like Amit Goswami and Fritjof Kapra mm-hmm. and a whole whole slew, they all say that the discoveries of quantum physics support the reality of consciousness and that it's yeah. you know clear to them that that is a you know not only a valid but a, a, the most likely interpretation of the what they call quantum weirdness well is is quantum weirdness uh, I, I know a lot of the experiments that were done and and you know it, it, i mean the ones you had described you know go down to so you know itty bitty itty bitty pieces um but that they wouldn't behave the way they did without a conscious observer. Yeah, who's the ultimate cosmic? Yeah, who's the ultimate cos? Who, who's the ultimate conscious um, observer? That I mean, there had to be a, a conscious question. I've been, I've been asked that question a lot of times, and it's difficult for me to answer it simply so the basic for your for your listeners who may be unfamiliar with the observer paradox um uh-huh. the the core pyramid that led to this you know formulation of the observer paradox was that if you uh were to send photons with a uh photon generator which very clever scientists figured out how to do. If you send a photon at a time through two slits, you just sort of aim them generally at two tiny slits, and then behind those slits there's a detector that will tell the the scientists where each photon impacted. When they devised this experiment the first time, what they were expecting to see was that the photons would go through the slit one at a time and gradually after hours of photons going through, they would build up on the detector as two vertical lines matching the two vertical slits. But that's not what they saw. What they saw was what's called an interference pattern the kind of pattern appeared on that detector that you would get if the photons were acting like waves. But the photon is the particle form of light, not the wave form of light. Moreover, there's only one 
photon at a time went through a slit, and yet it still behaved as if it were interacting with wave-like properties of, of other streams of light. And this was extremely baffling. It was an extremely unexpected result that the photons would not behave like particles, but they would behave like waves. So then they developed another experiment, which they thought would solve this puzzle. And it set up exactly the way I described, except they've added a, a device that can measure which slit a given photon is going through. And the measuring device doesn't interfere with the uh, photon at all. It just can uh, know where it's gone. So confidently expecting this to explain this strange uh, wave-like behavior of individual photons, they turned it on, let it run. The photons have to go through one at a time, so it's very slow. Came back to look at the results, and what they saw in the detector was what they had originally thought they'd see, which was two vertical impacts and no interference pattern. And after hundreds, thousands of repetitions of this experiment, what they found is the only difference between whether the photons form an interference pattern and whether they form this two vertical impacts is whether it's been measured. And this led to what was first called the measurement paradox and then the observer paradox and the intelligent observer paradox. So your question is, well, what makes an observer an observer? What, uh, you know, what do we get from that? Is there, is there always an observer or will there be limited observation? Does it have to, a lot of people ask me this one all the time. So what if a dog was watching it? Um, and that one's easy to respond to because there's no way to test it. You know, you, yeah. you don't know whether the dog was really watching it or not. Uh, but at any rate, very, very wise minds, including uh, people like Einstein and Heisenberg uh, and others, came to the conclusion, the inescapable conclusion, and the, the, the hard thing to uh, perhaps understand with physics is it also came to the mathematical conclusion that if there's no observer, then light behaves like waves. And if there is an observer, light will behave like particles. And this is also true of matter that if there's no observer, matter will behave like waves. And when there's an observer, matter will behave like particles. So the inescapable conclusion for a lot of the physicists was if there's no observer, there's nothing. There's the old saw about if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear, does it make a sound? Quantum physics answers that was if there's no one around, there's no tree, there's no forest, there's no sound. There's nothing. 
because it takes that intelligent observer to bring it into being. And this is a conundrum. This is hard for people to to grasp. Now, some people will say, well, if we are spirit and we are God and God is the creator, then God is always observing it. But if that were true, why does it happen at all? In other words, why would there be a time when there wasn't an observer and it behaved like waves? So I think we are, this is part of our co-creative power with in the, within the universe that we really do without knowing how we do it, without knowing for most of us that we even remotely have this kind of power, we actually turn on the movie and when we leave the room, not only do we turn off the movie of that room, the whole room disappears. And this is hard, hard to visualize. But if, in fact, as the saints and sages and even the idea that the universe is a holographic projection seems to support, this is a movie made out of energy. Always was, always will be. And so, and it's, and it's intelligence, the template of the movie exists in the astral. It exists in the subtle energy. It doesn't exist here. Oh, okay. So the movie still exists. It's just we turn it on or off. And we come in on the movie at different times, and then it turns on, and then when we go, uh, it keeps playing in the, in the wave-like form, in the astral energy form, and then when we come back, we turn it back into a material movie. Well, okay, so, so jumping from there to the fact that most of the, most of the important stuff comes from the astral plane, to manifest in, into the physical. Now, our body, the physical, has a brain. And they've often said we only use 7 to 10% of our brain. So what is the brain for? That's an excellent question. And uh, I, will, I will plug my next book that we're going to talk about in, uh, ah, yeah. in March uh, called uh, Breaking Through the Limits of the Brain. In that book, I address this question in depth, but I think the maybe the simplest answer is to say that in our astral form, we have mind, we have thought, we have emotion, we have memory, we have life force, and all of those things are astral in their essence and so when we die this is why it seems so familiar to people there are often people who have near-death experiences and they say their first experiences they just can't believe they're dead that it, it feels so much like who they are that it takes a while for them to really uh, accept that they no longer have a physical body because their feelings are the same, they work the same way, they may have different feelings in the moment, but they work the same way, they have, they're able to recall memories, they have thoughts, uh, 
So all of these things are uh, based in our astral being and always exist there. So when we have a physical body, the brain does two things. It is the switchboard that allows decisions made from our will and our thoughts and our intentions to translate into physical movement and to translate into using the body as our our vehicle. So in that sense, the the brain is like a, a, a switchboard. There's another sense that our brain is like a radio that um, it can tune in to a thought station, if you will, and when the brain tunes into a thought station, then we start experiencing a train of thoughts or a chain of memories, rather like a radio station playing. So there is a dynamic there, but the but the the strongest partner of the dance by far between subtle body and physical body is the subtle body. The subtle body really has the the most uh, control and awareness and power. And the physical body is is really without the astral uh, is is inert matter. So, so, but we are capable of programming ourselves, of reprogramming patterns of thoughts. I mean, through meditation, we're able to open ourselves up to higher realms. So that. So that, but but again, the brain seems to be kind of like um, a vehicle that we don't have the owner's manual to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that I, you know, I gave you a highly simplified answer there, and there's a deeper answer about how the brain works, which you were you were uh, alluding to there, which is that as we live through our body we need to form neural circuits. And we don't have to consciously form neural circuits. The brain will obligingly create a neural circuit uh, if we do something over and over. And one of the first things that we form when we are infants is the neural circuit or interconnected set of neural circuits that enables us to walk. Uh, human babies are the most helpless infants uh, on the on the planet. All other animals uh, come in with a certain amount of uh, preset circuits that allow them to do things. You know, baby deer can run uh, within minutes of being born if there's danger, but the human infant uh, really is is helpless. And so, one of the first challenges for us as an infant is to uh, get motor control, voluntary muscular control of our body, and not all at once, but we learn how to do very specific things like grasp something or crawl or eventually walk. And as we do those, uh, millions of neural circuits form among our hundred billion neurons in the brain and those neurons those neural circuits 
uh, are essential to our ability to, to function within the world. Uh, if we had to try to, you know, concentrate our way through walking every time we woke up in the morning, uh, the human race would have perished a long time ago. Uh, yeah. Where, where in fact, what we have is we have a circuit that we created when we were uh, infants and then learned to walk, and that is the same circuit that we keep using uh, throughout our life. Uh, and it stimulates uh, hundreds of muscles in the body, and it coordinates the you know, bilateral movement so that uh, your left and right are coordinated. And it's really an amazing thing, and it happens without us even having to think about it. But uh, millions of neurons are involved in just us sitting up and walking across the room. So neural circuits form to help us not have to do every, not have to relearn everything. And that it, there's a certain level of automatic um, response to these neural circuits. But as we get older, we form neural circuits in response to how we react to things or how we think about things. And by react, I mean react emotionally. Uh, we develop circuits that, you know, if we repeatedly don't like a certain food, every time we see that certain food, that neural circuit will fire and we will have the same emotional reaction. It, it connects to the emotions in the subtle body, but the emotion is, it. you know, don't like that. Yeah. I'm not the kind of person that eats that, whatever it is you say. But we make thousands of these. We make probably millions of these circuits that are really about personal preferences. And so the mind becomes a, you know, a, a key part of what I was talking about earlier, of us just getting uh, so involved in the movie and not in the movie projector and the director and producer behind it, that we don't see it. We're so caught up because these circuits fire automatically. We become, unfortunately, and I hate to say it, and I, I, when I researched it, I was kind of aghast at how true it is, but we become fairly automatic as we get older. Uh, you know, we, we respond to things in the same way over and over and over, and those cause us to have trains of thought. They cause us to feel certain ways. They uh, cause us to say the same things to people. Uh, and where once that automatic response was a uh, helpful, necessary thing for us to be able to function in the physical world, the subsequent neural circuits that we form that are about emotional reactions to things tend to make us prisoners of the physical body. We just uh, are, are, are so caught up in the movie that's playing and that we're perceiving, you know, as we're, we're perceiving ourselves as an actor in that movie, uh, in this yeah. in this physical drama, and so the brain becomes, you know, at first the brain is our friend, and then the brain can become our enemy. But importantly, 
as you said, and I'm really glad you said it, is that the brain is forever plastic. Even though we might make a million circuits, uh, if we just do something over and over again, it'll create a new circuit just as readily as it did when we were an infant. So the circuits we can build, if we so choose, are circuits that remind us of our higher nature, that connect us to spirit. And the very first circuit that I encourage everybody to build anew, if they haven't already, is to meditate. Uh, yeah. Because meditation... You know, I was thinking about this in an interview not long ago where somebody says, well, Joseph, what, what's it like to have meditated for over 40 years? And I, I was thinking, well, you know, it's really not that I've meditated for 40 years. It's that I've plugged into spirit for 40 years. That's the real uh-huh. question. You know, what's it like to plug into spirit for 40 years? That, that makes more sense. So meditation is a gateway to that higher experience because it it does two things meditation almost all forms of meditation do this but there are there are exceptions but almost all forms uh help you still the body so that the barrage of sensory stimulation uh diminishes and they focus your mind so that your thoughts become less just freewheelingly associative uh, a constant stream of thoughts they help the good meditation technique will will help you bring your mind to a focus and when those two things happen and not necessarily completely but even as they begin to happen uh, increased physical stillness and increased mental focus or just mental um calmness you begin to just feel spirit it's very natural and very wonderful mm-hmm. and that becomes an automatic thing that becomes the circuit that fires uh as readily as any other circuit and if you cultivate it and and stay with it in the same way that uh you developed a circuit that helps you walk. This way you develop a circuit that automatically takes you into spirit so that your meditation is not always a challenge. And when you start out meditation, everybody has the same kind of problem, which is it's hard to sit still. It's hard to get the mind to calm down. And it can be frustrating, and people can decide that uh, I'm just not cut out for meditation. It's not for me. But if you stick with it, just, you know, just a few more weeks, you will find that those neural circuits that you formed in the process of meditating make it progressively easier. It's easier to sit still. It's easier to bring the mind to a focus. And as it becomes easier, you have much uh, better results of of you know, feeling your higher self, tuning into your subtle body, uh, all all of the above happen because you're you're really deliberately and consciously letting go of physical awareness. And when you do that, 
you go right into subtle awareness. I, you know, if I can add to that, um, I, I, I have found that <clears throat> that by doing this, it opens you also up to um, greater creativity and greater inspiration, and that changes the light that flows through you, so that so that you're able to use those qualities to a greater extent than you were before. Um, I have found that that meditation for me opened the creative door to insight and wisdom and magic and all sorts of amazing gifts that we all carry within us. I'm I'm nothing special. I'm just like everybody else. But but you know when you get to that point where you are in stillness, it feel it felt to me as though doors opened up all over the place. And not not that I'm a great artist, but I started painting and doing all sorts of stuff. And not that I'm a great author, but but my writing increased amazingly well because I was touching more into the spiritual essence than I was to my intellectual limited frame of reference of the physical reality. So yes, I so couldn't agree does, more. It, it, I think it's, it's a, an, an excellent point. I mean, and when people tell me, you know, my life is is not working, I'm bored, and I'm this and I'm that, and it's like, have you been doing anything creative? Well, I'm not creative, then meditate. Because I promise you, if you stick with meditation, your creativity just absolutely floods you. Yeah. And, and it does. No, I agree. And, I and, think, in a way, what you're doing is, you know, you plug into spirit or you plug in more to spirit, to more awareness of spirit. And just naturally, when you go into your day-to-day uh, life, you're bringing that awareness with you. And that awareness is creative. It is more joyful. It is more concentrated. And you naturally become more creative. And then I think as you were alluding, as when you do that deliberately, you can become highly creative. Like you, I use, very consciously use my meditation time, uh, not all of it, but some of my meditation time to to tune into what I'm writing. And, uh, you know, all of my books have been you know, like the whole idea, the whole train of thought that I'm trying to put into organized sentences has already kind of come in to me. And it's just for me, it's a matter of of getting it into sentences in the right order that can be, uh, you know, read, it <laughs> can be understood. <laughs> but that the, that the core thought that I'm trying to put into words it already came flooding into me. And, and often with the appropriate sort of support and, and um, examples that I can uh, mix into that and that it all just is this wonderful flow of, of intuitive, creative inspiration. I, I think I envision it, you know, um, I usually take things down to a very fundamental level. 
um, I envision it as like when I sit down to write or whatever, I sort of tap into the other side and say, are you ready? And, you know, it's it's my click-in. It's, it's like I open the door and there's this me on the other side that is armed and ready to, you know, help me flow a concept, whether it's on the paper or whether it's, you know, something I'm drawing or, or and I have found also that because that, that channel, that click-in has become over the years um, easy for me to do, I find that if I'm doing something like knitting or crocheting or whatever, I'm I'm kind of not quite a hundred percent there, but I'm, you know, the door is cracked open, and and as I'm doing something that is, I call it mindless, um, because my my brain is not functioning, you know, you know, on everything I'm doing, I'm finding that then then I get the inspiration and it seeps in, and often I have to put something down to pick up a piece of paper and write down something that was worded so beautifully I know I didn't do it physically. So yeah. it and it can be taken it, to an extraordinary degree. Absolutely. Uh, there's a story in my book, um Break Through the Limits of the Brain about Brahms. And Brahms had learned to be in what he described as a semi trance state and entire symphonies would come through him and he would just be taking, you know, the notes and putting them on the staff as fast as he could to let it come through him. Entire symphony. And he said it was note perfect. It wasn't just a rough idea. It just came from beginning to end like a a song playing through his mind. So you can have extraordinary levels. Well, that was with Mozart, too. Most of the stuff that he wrote was perfect. Yeah. But you know, I'm what about child prodigies? And you know, the, from what you've been saying, a child a, a young child hasn't gotten all of their lanes open so to speak and and they come through on a spiritual level with with masterful talent and gifts in in music, music is where you see a lot of the child prodigies, but sometimes often math and things like that is the reason that they are able to to be flooded with that material because they haven't created the blockages that would be there later on in life. It might be that, but it could also be um, just the fact that we are always in two bodies, at least. I mean, we are in physical body and the astral body and maybe more subtle bodies beyond that. So we're always in, if you will, our fully adult, fully formed astral body uh, with all the knowledge and with all the experience that we have developed so far in our in our journey of incarnation. So you've got that awareness, that consciousness, that skill, that creativity trying to get into expression through a physical body and uh i think that if the the youngster has an environment which is usually key to prodigies they have an environment mm-hmm. that supports that 
uh, expression, then they quickly advance because, you know, they're given instruments, they're given music, they're talked with about how music works. And then all of that, you know, incredible skill of Mozart before he was born as Mozart is just got a channel to come through. Um, I think there probably are exceptions to the rule of, of prodigies occurring, you know, with no support around them. But, you know, Mozart's father was a musician, and yeah. uh, many of the mathematicians have uh, mathematics in their family. So they, they're born into an environment that's going to allow that incredible degree, that incredibly high degree of of ability to come through. So I think always it's the case that our our astral self is is the stronger dance partner than our physical self and that it's always going to be the most influential. Uh but we're not all, you know, we're not all karmically trying to be prodigies. Um, no. we're here <laughs> We're here to learn uh, the lessons that we need to learn, and they, you know, they vary as there are many of those as there are uh, souls. Well, you know, when when you just out of curiosity, before a spirit incarnates, does it have a a, a playbook already in hand, or is it determined what what the foundation of that life life is going to be once it hits physical? I think so. I not that you know. I personally know this, um, but you certainly. I'm very enamored of the testimony of near death experiencers. I find their their uh, descriptions of what they experience to be very illuminating about, you know, the process of in reincarnation and the process of having things you need to work out. There are so many stories uh, among the near-death experiencers where the the near-death experience doesn't want to go back. The, yeah. you know, it's like, are, are you kidding me, really? <laughs> I have to go back? It's wonderful here. I'm not leaving. And there was one story, I can't remember who told it, but uh, like successively higher and more powerful beings had to come to talk to this person until they were finally convinced that this really was the divine plan and that their growth depended on it, but also the, the experience of others in their life depended on them coming back and they finally were convinced. And um they would be able to see the whole story they would be able to see why they incarnated and what they were doing and how it fit into the whole uh contract or experience that they were meant to have in that lifetime but then when they come back into the body they forget it and that's kind of yeah. our story everybody's story I have a contract, you have a contract, but we don't necessarily know what it is. Uh, and probably if we did, that my personal theory is that we'd mess it up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that we absolutely. Would, 
we wouldn't really learn what we needed to learn because we were too knowing to begin with. So I definitely think uh, we have a contract, but I think it might also be very elaborate and detailed that it's not just one simple thing you can boil down to, I came in to learn X. But there's a lot of learning that takes place on so many levels, and I think all of that is present as you go in uh, to an incarnation. Knowing knowing that the spirit is perfect and immortal, um, I taught special ed for 25 years, and the children that I found the most exceptional um, were the Down syndrome children who are so full of love that Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And um, with them, the the one feature that, that, you know, physically that they have an an extra extra, uh, piece of DNA that is not paired. And my thought has always been that they are the next step in evolution because they are so full of love. They are so full of uh, peace that, that to me, it's, it's just, you know, as we move on through, through life and things like that, that, that that extra pair will be there and, and, and we will have a peaceful, loving aspect to our population that will hopefully um, take over because um, they're so magically wonderful and so full of love and so full of trust. And that's what humanity, I believe, is supposed to be. Yes. We seem to be a long way from it most of the, <laughs> yeah. most of the time. But I, I agree. I think that, um, on the other hand, just as a contrast, I don't think that the Earth, the, the three-dimensional physical reality is meant to become heaven. I think it is also exists to help us learn how to transcend the physical and attain the heavenly. Um, and therefore, it, it's kind of always going to be set up as a a challenge to us. Well, yeah. That may, well, yeah. What would the purpose of of taking on the heavy form B, if not to learn to, to you know, get through situations that, that are difficult or, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a learning experience, everything that happens. I, I'm allergic to everything. I have allergies almost to life. And, and yet, you know, you learn to work around it. And, and you know, so I think that, all of us have these challenges, but I do believe I want to go back to meditation because I think it's so important that people understand that meditation can help you um, not only deal with but overcome so much. It's a matter, though, of not just believing but of knowing you have the power to overcome it. And Yeah. The more it, it's you know believing one is one thing, but knowing is another. Yeah, and, becoming and yeah, 
So so even though you you may meditate constantly if if what your if your meditation is not focused the best way for you, you aren't going to get the best out of it. And you don't need a teacher, you just need to go to where it feels absolutely right. And you know, sometimes it's lead meditation, sometimes it's mantras, sometimes it's um affirmations, sometimes it's watching an ice cube dissolve sometimes it's watching um a flame flicker so you know it there there are so diff- many different ways of meditating you know i strongly urge people to try them all out and when you find one that really works for you stick with it mhm yeah but they're they're useful that the techniques are uh i think if you practice a Deliberately practice a technique that helps you uh, still the body and focus the mind that those other kind of experiences like you talked about, you know, watching an ice cream melt, uh, ice cream, <laughs> an ice cube melt. Ice cube, yeah. Uh, no one in their right mind lets ice cream melt. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Unless you really like it that way. Um, but... <laughs> Those kind of moment-like experiences come more naturally if you've had uh, deeper meditations. So I practice uh, Kriya Yoga, which was taught by Paramahansa Yogananda, and it has been for me just a most amazing transformative um, technique because it, uh, it stills the breathing. It's, it's a pranayama technique, and the end result is that your uh, natural predilection to to breathe in and just keep breathing like you normally would is uh, released, and you can calmly remain without breath for uh, some time, or it's much, much slower, and your all your life force is drawn inward and upward into the point between the eyebrows. And it is uh, an extremely effective technique for uh, plugging yourself into that that infinite spirit. So for those who are drawn to it, you can read about it on my website. Uh, you can read about it in the Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, you can probably read a lot about it on online just by uh, Googling it. But um, for those of you who might be drawn to something deeper or different than what you're doing, uh, I highly recommend Kriya. Well, isn't isn't meditation also a journey into meeting yourself? Yes, but I think what what a meditation technique is uh, speeds you along on the journey. It just makes the journey oh, yeah. from physical to subtle more easy. But it's still about finding your infinite self uh, in, in, you know, whatever degrees of experience you have as you meditate and meditate and meditate. Um, that ultimately is always what it is. The, the masters don't need to meditate. The masters just are aware of uh, infinite blissful consciousness all the time, and they know themselves to be that infinite blissful consciousness without having uh, 
to uh, themselves meditate. Well, I think also, the, the, I mean, I think that's something for people to realize, that there are masters on the earth plane at all times. It isn't, you know, just the ones that have already passed over. I mean, there are masters that are here, and they're, they're subtle and kind, and, you know, <clears throat> they're, not, they're not out to make a buck. They're out to share their joy and their love. And, um, you know, when you find one, you know, it's 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 amazing to be able to experience the presence of somebody who is whole, really whole. And yeah, you can, it's you, can you can feel them. Yeah, you, you can feel the energy in the room shift, and it, it becomes almost an automatic high, which is. Um, I, I had a, a young man once who was convinced that that uh, drugs would get him into an emotional high that was phenomenal. And I said, I, you know, you just don't know what meditation can do for you because that's a high that, that it's hard to come down from. And, um, well, it's peaceful and everything. It's just everything is clicking and everything is brighter. And there's, you know, I find it's, diff- it's difficult for me to meditate at night because, then I want to get up and do so much. And, you know, you also need to sleep. Yeah. So, so you know, making sure you do it at the right time of day for you is a good idea. Yeah. But yeah, it I know make, that. It, it, it just, it's, it's an amazing high. Um, I think what I wanted to, I wanted to also ask you, because I noticed we're running, we're running close to out of time, um so so what is it you're you're up to next what what is your what is your latest project um i have been working on a book for a while now that um i may have landed on a title finally and the title tentatively is the science of miraculous healing and how you can use the science of miraculous healing to uh, give yourself uh, resilient health and a very radiant sense of well-being because the the laws, the the, the spiritual and scientific laws behind what uh, we call miraculous healing are actually laws that we work all the time. We just don't know it. And so uh, that that is the book I'm working on and hoping to uh, you know get it out maybe in uh, 2024 sometime. Oh wow! Well, also you have that book on the Nagas and Yugas. Which Yugas? Sorry. Um, can you, can you fill us in a little bit about the Yugas too? Because that looks. That looks like a fascinating book. I am. It's definitely on my list to read. Well, the Yugas uh, is a um, concept that's been around for thousands of years in India. Uh, literally, might go back as far as 6,000 BC. And the essential idea of the Yugas is that human civilization. Um, 
becomes more enlightened and less enlightened in a ever-repeating cycle of 24,000 years. And that uh, in that cycle, there are distinct ages or yugas. Yugas literally just means an age. Uh, and we see this not just in India, but we see in the concept in Greece of the Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age. And it also exists in many other um, traditional cultures, the idea that uh, if you look backward, you will see higher ages in the past. And if you look forward, you can anticipate higher ages in the future. And that the yugas is a very um, uh, specific organization of, of the stages that mankind goes through. And we're on the upswing, having just come through uh, what would effectively be known as the Dark Ages. And we had mm -hmm. periods of that time we called the Dark Ages, but really that uh, large part of that time was very dark and very material and very without uh, spiritual guidance. And now we're coming into an age that is uh, more about energy, both outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly, uh, we have a civilization that is exploiting energy. We're exploiting uh, petroleum. We're exploiting uh, hydroelectric. We're exploiting uh, solar power and nuclear power in order to make our civilization run. But we're also more aware of subtle energy than in the past. So uh, practices like meditation and yoga postures are coming into awareness uh, of, in our entire society, of people in our entire society, and they were invented, they existed thousands of years before at an age that, if you can think about the circle having a you know, a bottom and a top of the circle, the, the age we're in now, you know, parallels an age at a similar height uh, up that circle, up that arc of the circle uh, in the past. And that if you look back to those times, you will see that uh, meditation was practiced, yoga postures were practiced. And now because we're coming into a similar age with a similar consciousness, those ancient practices have a modern uh, purpose. And there's a lot in that whole cycle of the yugas that's fascinating that I go into in my book. Uh, I go into some of the really ancient artifacts like the Great Pyramid, uh, but also into more subtle things like the Vedas and Sanskrit uh, that show incredible, uh, what would you call it, sophistication. Uh, Sanskrit. <laughs> Does this have a connection to the progression of the equinoxes as well? Uh, yes, but only to the entire circle, not to the individual signs. So there's okay. there's 12 signs, right? Each one would be 2,000 years long in order to make a 24,000-year cycle. Um so the yugas don't align to those particular changing from one sign to the other. But the whole cycle 
uh, takes place in the same 24,000 years as the precession of the equinoxes. Uh, So there there is one connection there. But anyway, um, the basic notion that we had higher ages in the past is something people have been fascinated with for uh, a long time in modern days. And then the notion that we have a more positive future is reassuring to people, and I really try to uh, explore that uh, in the book uh, fully to, you know, give us some uh, give us some hope about what's coming. <laughs> well, I mean, if there's no what that old saying: those who don't learn history are are, are doomed to repeat it. And yeah. you know, I I do think I do believe that there are cycles that we have been through. And I, I hopefully think we're coming to an end of a cycle um, because, you know, it's um, people are, are, are really worried that, you know, the world's going to end. And, and that's not the case. I, I think we are going through a growth, uh, you know, we've had dark ages before and we'll have them again. And, you know, we will survive. And... Uh, there's a learning experience here someplace, um, but but it just uh, yeah I look forward to reading that book. I am definitely um, it's on my book list, but but so is, so is your other book. So um, I feel that that you you have a real gift and you have you are you are gifting humanity with amazing information. It's just a matter of getting them to listen and to to experiment and to stretch themselves because um, all you have to do is experience this once and you will never look back. It's, it's, it's true. That good. But you got to get people. What I felt for, you know, some of the audience, not all of the audience, but some of the audience I'm hoping to reach with The Physics of God and, and my other books are people who have become convinced that science has ruled out the possibility of any anything that religion claims, anything that is spirituality is uh, just not possible. And I think that those many of those people who have ruled out the possibility because they believe science is saying that, uh, I think would be very uh, thrilled to be able to embrace spirituality knowing that science supports it, doesn't work against it. So there's so that uh, kind of mind, I'm hoping, can read one of my books and go, ah, I can <laughs> I can embrace spirituality. I don't I don't have to go against my rational self. I can embrace spirituality because there is no contradiction. And so that yeah. I'm hoping yeah. to read people who who are stuck by what science seems to be telling them. I am sure that you will definitely reach those people. Just look, we are out of time. So I want to thank you so very, very much. This has been enlightening. And um, I'm looking forward to getting you back again. So um, thank you so very much. Uh, Is there a website they can go to, by the way? 
Yes, you can uh, find out about all my books and get other information. Uh, there's a meditation technique you can learn on my site, and it's called Joseph Selby, and Selby is spelled S-E-L-B-I-E, which is an unusual spelling of Selby. Uh, but it's Joseph Selby with the B-I-E dot com. And just go there and follow your interest. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joseph. I look so forward to talking to you again soon. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good night now. Good night. Okay, everybody. Thanks for joining. Check us out next Monday. Check out the website. That'll have the next show. Have a great one. Stay healthy, healthy, happy, and um, enlightened, hopefully. Good night now.